morning, everyone. We're really glad you're with us. There's a lot of news to get to. Good morning. Very big day in Washington. Very big day yes, in the country. Yes, a very big day in Washington. Let's start with five things to know for this Thursday, August 3rd. Former President Donald Trump said to appear in a Washington, D.C. courtroom just hours from now on charges that he tried to overturn the 2020 election and hang on to power. This is his third arraignment in four months. And new overnight barricades going up outside the federal courthouse. We've learned the Secret Service has done a walkthrough of the courthouse and law enforcement is monitoring potential threats. All as the former president's lawyers testing out potential defenses, citing the First Amendment, saying the former president was just listening to his lawyers and saying he truly believed his own lies, that he won the election. But Trump's former attorney general doesn't believe that. He tells CNN, our Caitlin Collins, that he believes his old boss, quote, knew well that he lost the election. And 2024 candidate Mike Pence, former Vice President Mike Pence, says his former boss was, quote, surrounded by a group of crackpot lawyers who kept telling him what his itching ears wanted to hear. CNN This Morning starts right now. Now you hear this a lot, but today really is a monumental day. I mean, the third time President Trump is going to be arrested, going in for an arraignment in four months. And in Washington, D.C., yeah, in the right. same courthouse where dozens upon dozens of rioters for the January 6th insurrection in the Capitol have been tried and charged. Now the That's former right. president heading back to Washington, D.C. for the actions that led to January 6th. Yeah, that's right. Putting it all in context. Let's walk through what is about to happen today. So security barriers are going up overnight as former President Trump gets ready to, as we were just saying, return to the epicenter of his alleged plot to overturn the election, and he'll appear in a D.C. courtroom. He is expected to plead not guilty on four counts. Those include conspiracy to defraud the United States. His fingerprints will be digitally taken. A mugshot will not be taken. And we're getting a preview of what Trump's lawyers are preparing to argue as this case moves forward. That his claims of election fraud, that they would be protected by free speech. That he was simply following the advice of his lawyers and that he truly believed the debunked fraud claims. Our Caitlin Collins asked former Attorney General Bill Barr about all three of those potential arguments. All conspiracies involve speech and all fraud involves speech. So, uh, you know, free speech doesn't give you the right to engage in a fraudulent conspiracy. I don't think this defensive uh, advice of counsel uh, is going to go forward because I think the president would have to get on the stand and subject himself to cross-examination in order to raise that. And he'd also have to waive attorney-client privilege. And, and what would happen if he got on the stand? I think, uh, I think it would not look it would not come out very well for him. At first, I wasn't sure, but I have come to believe that he uh, w knew well that he had lost the election. And we have team coverage from Trump's Bedminster, New Jersey home to the new D.C. courthouse where Trump will be arriving later today. That's where we begin with CNN's Caitlin Polance. Caitlin, walk us through what's actually going to happen on the ground there in D.C. today. Well, Phil and Poppy, Donald Trump would not be expected to be setting foot outside of the courthouse on these grounds that are so close to the U.S. Capitol, where he had that riot after the election, where he had the rally after the election that turned into a riot. However, Donald Trump will be here in Washington, D.C. in person. He's going to be coming into D.C. There will be some minor or at least short-term traffic disruptions, we are told. Right now, the roads around the courthouse aren't closed, but there's not a lot of parking here. There's 
barriers up. Uh, and so it is going to be quite a fortress-like situation down here around the courthouse at the time of this arraignment, which is scheduled right now for 4 p.m. in the afternoon. When this happens, Donald Trump, he's going to be brought into the courthouse and he's going to be taken up into uh, the very areas where he will be arrested and then where he will be presented before the magistrate judge to face these charges for the first time related to January 6th. It's very likely many members of the special counsel's office will be in the courtroom with him. Jack Smith, the special counsel himself, he was in the courtroom with Donald Trump and his lawyers sitting opposite of him uh, whenever he was arraigned in Florida in the separate case related to the documents. It's quite plausible we do see Jack Smith and Donald Trump in the same room again today. And Donald Trump is very likely to be sitting at a defense table. He very, is, he very likely may not address the court at all himself but his lawyers will, and he will be in that court. We're not gonna have any photos or video of anything that happens inside the courthouse. That is how federal court works. However, there are sketch artists that can observe it as well as members of the public and the press who will be able to see exactly what's going on at this hearing. Expected to be very short, but an important hearing because it kicks us off into uh, the, the, the road toward a trial after Donald Trump is arrested facing those charges. And so a lot to look forward here today, right around 4 p.m. Yeah, big question though, when is that trial gonna be? Before or after people vote in a general election? Caitlin, thanks very much for the reporting in Washington. Well, let's go now to Bedminster, New Jersey, where Trump is waking up this morning ahead of his third arraignment. CNN's Elena Treen is there now. And Elena, what are you hearing behind the scenes from what Trump and his team are doing to prepare for this moment? All right, well, good morning, Phil. I am here. I'm here uh, just outside the president's former golf club. He'll be passing right near her later today as he uh, heads to Washington, D.C. for his court appearance. And Donald Trump's team has a pretty good idea of what's going to transpire today. This is his third arraignment in a matter of months. And so they know what they're walking into. Uh, I think you can expect Donald Trump's mood today to be quite somber in D.C. I mean, he is very clearly unhappy with these charges and frustrated that he has to go through this process, I'm told. Uh, now, I also just want to point out some things that have been happening behind the scenes here in Bedminster uh, over the past couple of days. On Tuesday night, shortly after Donald Trump learned that he was being indicted, uh, he dined with Fox News executives at his golf club just near here. Uh, the Fox News president Jay Wallace and chief executive Suzanne Scott uh, sat down with him and encouraged him to participate in their Republican primary debate being held later this month in Milwaukee. Now, uh, my colleague Kristen Holmes and I uh, have some reporting that he was noncommittal about his participation during that dinner. And that's really what we've come to expect with Donald Trump's posturing around these debates. He's both publicly and privately floated skipping one or both of the upcoming two primary debates. And he's pointed to his commanding uh, lead in the polls, as well as his frontrunner status for not wanting to share the stage with some of his rivals. Hmm. All right. Elena Treen, thank you. So this is Trump's third arrest in four months. The two previous indictments related to falsifying business records and the alleged mishandling of those classified documents. But if you add them all up, Trump is facing 78 criminal charges in three different cases right now, as he is the GOP frontrunner. It's a first in American history, that's for sure. Maura Gillespie, she was chief deputy chief of staff to former Congressman Adam Kinzinger and advisor to former Speaker John Boehner. She joins us along with our political director, David Chalian, and our legal analyst and former federal prosecutor, Elliot Williams. Good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're here. Elliot, let's just start on the law of it all. Bill Barr, 
are just sort of knocking down one by one by one what defense counsel for Trump seems to be putting out there. Uh, he really does. Um, and, you know, in particular, it's the speech point, uh, the free mm -hmm. speech point that the, that the president was entitled to speak as a candidate for office. And certainly candidates for office are entitled to you know, have some of the greatest protections for speech. But the simple fact is some statements can be criminal acts. Uh, threatening someone else is a great example. But also, as the attorney general said, all fraud involves some statement of speech. And because fraud is an element of what's charged here, uh, you know, that's a big part of it. Also, this, this uh, relying on advice of counsel defense is, is, is really going to bite the president uh, should he try to use it at trial. He will have to testify and be cross-examined. And every statement he's made to his attorneys or every conversation he had is fair game for prosecutors. And that could be devastating to a defendant. Now, again, as we talked about yesterday, Poppy, as a defendant, he's entitled to, you know, to, to make the case that he wishes. He doesn't have to, but, he, but he's allowed to make the case he wishes. But these are, these are all sort of risky and, and all have holes in them, I think. Yeah, that's an important point because this we are seeing the federal government side of this case mm -hmm. up to this point. We've not seen the defense other than what they've said on television lay out uh, the details of how they are going to try and rebut some of those claims. More, what was interesting when I was listening to Caitlin's interview with the former Attorney General Bill Barr last night, frankly, it was all interesting uh, to some degree, but he was talking about the idea of evidence of fraud and that mm -hmm. there have been two and a half years no evidence of fraud. Uh, there's pretty much no way the president couldn't know based on everything laid out in the indictment. Take a listen to what he said. Here we are two and a half years and still they haven't come forward with any evidence. And in fact, as the indictment puts forward, you, you have Giuliani saying, yeah, we have a lot of theories, but we don't have any evidence. I mean, that's a pretty big admission. No evidence. They wanted to overturn the election and they had no evidence of outcome determinative fraud. And I think what's striking is so much of what we heard from Trump's legal defense team has been state of mind, what he actually believed. And what the prosecutors are saying are, look at what he's been told repeatedly over and over. And also, there has been no evidence still right. to this moment. Mm -hmm. And it goes to the question about competency, right? So is he going to take the track of, I knew it was a lie, but I said it anyway. So he can take that stance. Or he's going to say, I truly believe it. And yet, all the evidence proves the contrary. So maybe he's not in the right state of mind. I think at the core of this, though, Donald Trump decided to pursue his own passion and desire for power at the cost of our vote and not just my vote, your vote, the American people's vote. It didn't matter to him. He was going to do anything at all costs to stay in power. And I think him putting his own personal ambitions over the bedrock of our democracy is at the core of this entire you know, indictment. Yeah, and specifically at the core of the civil rights uh, component. Right, yeah, which is, uh, I think, the most fascinating yeah. part of all of this, maybe the most complex, but fascinating. David. Yeah, well, first of all, just to this point about whether he um, knowingly uh, was lying about this or whether he actually believed he lost, it certainly seems from the indictment that the prosecutors are going to attempt to make the case in court that he actually knew he lost because they laid out I forget what the total count was, maybe 11 different people who uh, yeah. went in and explained right. from his senior attorney general to White the House DNI, House, so Senior Department of Homeland Security, campaign. DNI, Joint Chiefs of Chaff. So like, they Jason put, Miller, still on his campaign. Exactly. Yeah. So they put this uh, entire litany of people who explained to him that he lost. So it seems like they are going to argue to a jury that he must have known mm -hmm. he lost. But it is interesting, Bill Barr, I think, said, and some other lawyers, that's going to be sort of the more difficult part for prosecutors is to 
really, really get into the mind, prove intent in those in the, in the moment. He said it was going to be complicated, but I want you to listen to what he said, kind of compared to what Trump's lawyer said, go back to back, uh, and what he thinks mm-hmm. Jack Smith hasn't shown yet. Listen. I would like them to try to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Donald Trump believed that these allegations were false. The government in their indictment takes the position that he had actual knowledge that he had lost the election and the election wasn't stolen through fraud. And they're going to have to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. Which is a high bar, of course. It's a high bar. Now, that leads me to believe that they we're only seeing a tip of the iceberg on this. Elliot, this gets at what David was saying, but to that point, uh, should there be a general assumption that there is a lot more behind what is in the 45-page indictment in terms of what the special counsel's office has right now? I wouldn't say there should be a reasonable assumption, but but I think it's it's probably likely. And the attorney general is touching on a very important point here that everybody needs to have in their mind what reasonable doubt means. And it's the highest standard in our system, uh, in our criminal justice system. And you really have to establish to, to almost near certainty that something is true. Now, in the indictment, they, they list, I, I believe it's one instance of the president acknowledging that he lost the election um, mm-hmm. and then a litany uh, points at which people put, sort of seem to put him on notice, uh, as, as you mentioned, high government officials. Now, that litany sort of establishes this idea that he was you know, reckless with respect to, you know, uh, recklessly disregarding facts or reality um, in, in, in carrying out the acts of fraud there. But, you know, but that, that can be particularly tough to prove. Now, again, it is important to note that in order to establish... Uh, conspiracy to defraud the government, you have to have some act of dishonesty. And that's why all this focus on whether the president lost the election. My father-in-law asked me about this very question this morning. like, Why do we care that he lied? Well, in order to get to that that first charge, conspiracy to defraud the government, you have to prove some act of dishonesty or lying. Hmm. Ellie Williams, uh, your father-in-law wakes up very early in the morning, and I I appreciate him for that. Uh, For the record, record, my father-in-law... Is in Hong Kong, so he's actually staying. Okay. Oh, that's, that's cheating. Right that's that's <laughs> cheating. Ellie Williams, thanks, man. We appreciate it more. David, stay with us. We got a lot more to go. This morning, we do have this really interesting brand new CNN polling shows how many Americans actually believe Trump's election lies. Plus, how the American people feel about President Biden and his handling of the economy. We'll break down all the numbers ahead. Welcome back. We have brand new CNN polling this morning. It shows 41% of Americans approve of the way President Joe Biden has handled his job. And nearly 60% disapprove. David Chalian, CNN's political director, is back. David, you've been combing through the numbers. What's behind them? Well, take a look at how stubbornly low his approval rating has been over time. So you said he's at 41% in our brand new poll, which is not a number any president running for re-election would want to see at this point in the presidency. But it's it's the fact that he's been sort of stuck there. Look, in May and uh, March, he was at 42. Uh, it wasn't until in the aftermath where Democrats overperformed expectations in the midterms that he got a little bit of a bounce. But now he's uh, settled back down here. Look at this, folks, by party. And this is the number that I know is going to keep folks up in the White House uh, late at night. The Independence, 36% job approval among independents. Again, it is it is there. It is constant. That's where it was in May. Um, independents were a critical part of Joe Biden's success in winning the White House. And then take a look at where Joe Biden falls compared to his modern day predecessors in this job at this point in their presidency. So in June or July of the third uh, year now, and you see that Joe Biden 
is down there with Jimmy Carter, uh, Donald Trump. Ronald Reagan is the exception to the rule there. The other guys are one-term presidents. Ronald Reagan was down to 42% at this that, point. And, that, end? <laughs> and that ended with a pretty resounding re-election victory in 84. So I'm sure that the uh, Biden White House would like to follow that Reagan model. But he is in a danger zone for an incumbent president heading into the re-election. Especially if it is the economy, stupid, right? <laughs> Especially that, right? What do the numbers show? So things are not good in terms of how Americans perceive the economy, Poppy, despite all these positive positive economic indicators that we've been seeing. Take a look here. It's about 25% say that economic conditions in this country are uh, very good or somewhat good. 75% say they are poor. Take a look at that number about economic conditions being, conditions being good over time. Mm -hmm. And you see here, it's been a pretty dour mood for Americans about the economy for quite some time during this uh, Biden administration right now. Nearly a, a small, slim majority, 51% of Americans tell us they think we are still in a downturn and that the economy is going to get worse. So that is a number there. And then I showed you his overall approval. Look at Biden's approval rating on the economy and on inflation. It is 37% approval on the economy, 30% approval on inflation. That's lower than his overall job approval, meaning the economy is a bit of a weak spot. Yeah, I know we're going to get to the other really interesting point. But can you blame people when every time I go to the grocery store, it still costs me more? I know inflation is getting better. I'm not arguing with the facts, but I'm paying more. Yeah. And it's really hard, to, expensive to get a mortgage now. So, like, these are two staple things for folks. There, there's no doubt about it. And as we know, perception is reality, yes. right? I mean, so, so you can have all the good economic indicators. And this is what we, uh, you know, learn from White House sources all the time. They are trying to have him out on this Bidenomics tour because they know... They have a sales job to do yeah. to try to get Americans and they to feel they better have a story about what they to tell. Yeah, I mean, exactly. they are convinced that if people just recognize what's happening, they will understand and believe. And it's been a disconnect throughout the course mm -hmm. of the right. last couple of years. Uh, Poppy mentioned that there's another poll as well, mm -hmm. uh, or, or some, some other numbers that are fascinating, which is uh, asking if President Biden legitimately won the presidency. 61% uh, say yes. But look at the breakdown. Nearly seven and ten Republicans say Biden did not legitimately win. Uh, that's that's jarring. It is jarring. In fact, that 69 percent number now that you see Republicans saying Biden didn't legitimately win, it's ticked back up here. And this is the context. This was taken in the month of July, taken before the Trump indictment. But this is the context in which the president goes to that courthouse today, in which that indictment uh, exists for Americans. You, to keep in mind that nearly seven in 10 Republicans say that Joe Biden didn't legitimately win the election. That's why Donald Trump uh, believes he's created a, for himself politically a successful alternate universe from the facts laid out in the indictment. Or you worked with Adam Kinzinger, mm -hmm. John Boehner. I know that they're not reflective of where so the Republican Party is right now writ large with Donald Trump being the front runner. But still, seven in 10 it's Republicans jarring. is jarring to you. Absolutely, that, that's jarring to me. Uh, because I think about the Republicans that I worked for, as you yeah. mentioned, the ones who I talk to on a daily basis, the, part of the reasons why I'm a conservative and I can't justify that number. I mean, to me, that just doesn't make sense to me. But I think it also plays into what's happening right now and why Donald Trump is seizing on this um, election lie. But it builds into this conspiracy that he has been able to convince seven out of ten people that he won the election in 2020. Do, do those numbers um, to you say they are more against Biden or for Trump numbers. I think you, if you're looking you see what I'm at, saying? Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I think objectively, people are disappointed in what Biden has done. 
So it's easy to say, well, he shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have been there in the first place. And let's just you know, go with what we thought was better for us because he's telling us it's better for us to have him in there. Donald Trump doesn't have a plan. He has never really had a plan. And as far as we can tell so far, his entire election, his entire campaign right now is simply vendettas. Um, so unfortunately, he has not only lied to the people who support him and give them his, their hard-earned money, but he's also setting them up for failure because he doesn't have anything to go forward with. And I would just note, guys, a couple other findings in this poll that yeah. I think are uh, telling going forward. There's, the majority has little confidence or no confidence at all that elections are going to reflect reality in, in our society. That, that is a problem for a functioning democracy. Yep. And then the country is about split in half, 50-50, about whether or not elections will be overturned for partisan purposes. The fact that half the country says yes, that that will happen, again, that shows a weakness in the, the fundamentals of our democracy. Yeah. Uh, it just gets to the thing that keeps, should keep people up at night. Like this moment right now is not about getting to tomorrow, which, where it seems like the former president is most yeah. days. It's so much bigger than that and how to dig out of wherever this is. Because guess what? You ask Republicans on Capitol Hill who won the election and they're being candid with you, maybe maybe one out of every 50 says Trump did. Right. They all know, oh, they all know, yeah. and it's their supporters that they're telling. David, Mara, thanks guys, yeah, appreciate guys, it. Thank you so much. To this now, two soldiers injured in Russia's war, why the Ukrainian army rescued both their comrade and their enemy, that's next. Plus, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooter sentenced to death, reactions from survivors and the families of the victims, that's ahead. Mm. New attacks in Russian territory this morning. Russian forces shot down seven drones in an area southwest of Moscow, calling it a foiled terror attack by the Kiev regime. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian forces leaving no man behind and showing that. Look at this. Rescuing one of their own soldiers injured on the battlefield and rescuing a Russian commander left for dead by his own unit. The Ukrainians say even though he was the enemy, he was human. Nick Payton Walsh, live in Zaporizhia this morning. Good morning. Yeah, extraordinary footage here of the intensity of the fight down in the south here. Now, those drone strikes you talked about, Ukraine, it seems, trying to hit Russia, Russia trying to hit Ukraine, and most of them intercepted part of this growing sense of violence and anticipation as the Ukrainian counteroffensive towards key objectives begins to build. And here are two extraordinary stories of different fates on the front line. It is usually only the dead lying here in the craters of Ukraine's southern front. But sometimes a glint of life shines. This drone spotting a Ukrainian soldier, Sergei, separated from his unit. Wounded in the chest and leg by shelling, he filmed this as he lay alone, bleeding. He feared whatever fight to live he put up would not be enough, he later told CNN from his hospital bed. I was ready to fight for my life, and I did, even lying there under the blazing sun. I realized I was too close to the Russians, and you even start to look at your gun in a different way. But the drone operators had other plans. They attached water, medicine, and a note to the drone and sent it back. It found him again and dropped the package. But he didn't know if it was friendly or a Russian bomb. All the time I was crawling, a drone was always hovering above. 
We didn't realize if it was friend or foe. It was a lottery. This is the moment he realizes the drone may save him. The water and medicine kept coming, easing the pain that was visible, even from up high, and then he crawled back to safety. The combat medics who gave me first aid when they found me were very surprised I survived for two days with a pierced lung. Serhii's recovering and talks now of a new life with greater value and purpose. They don't want to leave anyone behind, said the drone operator. Every life is important to us. I could not live with myself if we just left someone behind in the field. Probably only several miles away, salvation was uglier. Here is a Ukrainian assault by the 15th National Guard on a Russian position. It is ferocious and eventually forced a dozen Russian troops to pull back. Artillery had injured the Russian commander badly and the Russians left him behind, presuming he was dead. But this video supplied by Ukrainian forces shows they found him alive. And he received medical treatment. We're not naming him for his safety, but he was later awarded a posthumous medal, according to Russian media reports left behind and declared dead by his comrades. The Ukrainians who found him say he may have wished he didn't survive. We said, don't try anything or you'll die, he says. And he asked us to shoot him. And we offered him a chance to do it himself, but he said he could not do that. He's an enemy and I had no real desire to save him, but orders are orders and they have our guys, and we can swap prisoners. As a human, another says, I was shocked that they had left him behind. But as a soldier, I know my enemy, and I know it's not an uncommon practice for them. The opposite fates on different sides, in these wide, ugly expanses of violence. I should point out, we don't know if eventually Russia has become aware that this commander survived and is in Ukrainian captivity, but the speed of which they seem to have declared him dead and sort of drawn a line under that, emblematic, I think, of, well, it's fair to say, even objectively, Russia's value of human life on the front lines here, Ukraine trying there to, I think, broadcast the ingenuity it'll use to get its troops back alive. But these losses now mounting on both sides as the grind of this push south becomes so much more strategically important for Ukraine and the wider West. Nick, that is extraordinary to see. Thank you very much for bringing it to us. Well, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife Sophie ending their marriage after 18 years. We're going to have reporting on that coming up next. Well, after 18 years of marriage, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife are separated. The Prime Minister announcing the news on Instagram, writing, quote, Sophie and I would like to share the fact that after many meaningful and difficult conversations, we have made the decision to separate. Uh, Erica Hill is with us now. Uh, Erica, I think they've got three kids, right? Yes. Um, I was in Ottawa with President Biden a couple months ago. Yep. They were there. Mm -hmm. Not that you could ever see anything in public. Um, 
surprising, very surprising. Uh, there was definitely some surprise. I think, you know, I did a little deep dive in sort of Canadian media. Yeah. Um, maybe some people who weren't surprised. I, but I don't think that there is as much of a focus sometimes as relationships in other countries as we see in the U.S. when it comes to politicians, which is interesting. 18 years of marriage, as you noted, their anniversary was just a couple of months ago. They were also together at King Charles's coronation um, back in May, but putting out that statement, talking about these meaningful and difficult conversations they had. And then in terms of the prime minister's office, they said, they then put out, after this was posted on the Instagram accounts of both the prime minister and his uh now now separated wife, on their Instagram accounts, the prime minister's office putting out a statement noting that they had actually signed a legal separation agreement. Their focus, understandably, is their family, their children, asking for privacy for obvious reasons, saying they remain a close family. Um, and what was interesting, too, is they noted that they'll actually be on vacation together mm-hmm. next week. And which, she has a book coming out as well. She does. So she had announced that, that in the spring. Together, but because of the content of the book. No, but I think probably people will be even more interested. So she mm-hmm. is a big mental health advocate um, and has really been involved in that work and announced in May that she has a book coming out next spring. It's called Closer Together, Knowing Ourselves, Loving Each Other. And she had said in the announcement she'd be sharing some of her own deeply personal stories that she had learned on her own uh, mental health and well-being journey. So, yeah, well, Thinking about the kids, thinking about the family yes. for sure. Erica, thank you. Well, also this morning, the jury handing down a sentence of death to the gunman convicted of killing 11 people in the nation's deadliest anti-Semitic attack. We're going to hear from the victims coming up next. I needed to tell my story. We all needed to tell our stories. We needed to know, everyone needed to know how brutal this was. I had a great sense of relief and that there was justice. I felt that the punishment was well served. That is the daughter of one of the victims of the Tree of Life synagogue mass shooting, reacting to the jury, sentencing her mother's killer to death. Yesterday, a jury in Pittsburgh handed down Robert Bauer's fate, nearly five years after he carried out the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in the history of the United States. Bowers opened fire on the synagogue during services there. He killed 11 people Six more were hurt. This was in 2018. Danny Freeman has been following the whole trial and has more from Pittsburgh. I had a great sense of relief and that there was justice. In an exclusive interview with CNN, shooting survivor Andrea Wedner described the moment the sentence was announced. It was a great sense of relief. It was very emotional, but... Here we are in the courtroom and we're not allowed to show our emotions. So we waited till we got out into the hall and that's when we let it out. Wedner said she cried and hugged fellow family members who lost loved ones in the attack. Wedner's own mother, 97-year-old Rose Malinger, was killed during the shooting. Andrea, who was also shot, stayed with her until her last breath. What was it like for you having to testify and relive so much of what happened that day? It was difficult, but it was cleansing. It was freeing. Um, I needed to tell my story. We all needed to tell our stories. We needed to know, everyone needed to know how brutal this was. Verdict forms revealed jurors were not convinced of the defense's core arguments, that the shooter suffered from schizophrenia or was motivated by delusions, and not a single juror believed Bowers, quote, committed the offenses under mental or emotional disturbance.
Instead, the jury found Bowers methodically planned the shooting, was motivated by his hatred of Jews, and showed no remorse after the massacre. Both judge and jurors were emotional alongside the families as the verdict was read. It felt like justice was happening. Audrey Glickman also survived the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue and was immensely grateful federal prosecutors tried the case. We did have the trial. We did learn all these facts from it that we would not have known without the trial. It would have just been, oh, he shot a lot of people, put them away for life, and that was it, and he would have been happy. Now, Poppy and Phil, in just a matter of hours, we're actually expecting to see the formal sentencing process take place in the federal courthouse behind me. And as part of that, we also expect to hear some more emotional victim impact statements. And that will all be perhaps for the last time while the shooter is in the courtroom. Poppy, Phil. Danny, Danny, I know you've been there covering this whole trial and, and all these jury deliberations. We really appreciate your reporting on it. Thank you. Well, security has been ramping up in D.C. overnight ahead of Donald Trump's historic third arraignment. We're going to be live outside the courthouse. Plus, who Donald Trump had dinner with last night and why they encouraged him to participate in the Republican debate. I have come to believe that he uh, knew well that he had lost the election. It was former Attorney General Bill Barr and his response last night when asked by our own Caitlin Collins if he thought the former president really knew he lost the 2020 election despite peddling repeated election fraud claims. Now, in just hours, Trump is set to be arraigned in federal court in Washington, D.C. after being indicted for his role in efforts to subvert the results of that election. Joining us now is former Republican Congressman Fred Upton from Michigan. He was one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump after the January 6th insurrection. Congressman, it's good to see you again. To start with what Bill Barr said, do you think there's any way the former president did not know that he lost the election? No, he must have known. I mean, I watched the interview last night with, with you all. Uh, Barr was uh, very deliberate. But, you know, you read the indictment and there's person after person from his campaign to others that said, you lost. It's over. There's no evidence that's there. So it's pretty clear that the uh, reading the indictment that, in fact, he did know, but he continued the big lie. One of the things that uh, it has become almost formulaic at this point after an arraignment, and there have been three, or after an indictment, uh, where the president claims victimization. His supporters, of which there are uh, almost uh, unanimity inside the Republican conference, particularly in the House, to some degree in the Senate as well, claim victimization, claim weaponization. I want you to listen to what Bill Barr said. I don't think that, you know, this is a, a, an issue of his victimization. I think he brought this on himself. This is one of the reasons I oppose him for the Republican nomination, because he has this penchant for en engaging in these reckless acts that create these calamitous situations and then undercut the cause he is supposed to be leading. I, the reason why that was striking is because so much of the last five or six years, and, and you know this having been a member of the House Republican Conference, is Republicans scrambling to find any way to defend things that either they don't agree with, they wish had never happened, they wish hadn't been tweeted in 280 characters, and yet they continue to do it uh, without fail, including after this third indictment. You were inside the conference. Why? 
Well, they don't like losing. They didn't like losing the White House. There's a real difference if you got an administration, and I worked for the Reagan administration a long time ago, um, but there's a big difference between having an administration that's part of your party or one that's part of the opposition. And so, you know, picking for Republicans, picking on the Democratic administration is fair game, I guess you could say. They, they don't like it. And, you know, the other thing is that Trump has such a stranglehold on the voters at the grassroots level. I mean, I saw the polls that you ran a little bit earlier this morning, 70 percent believing Trump that the election was stolen, yet there's scant evidence that it would have overturned any of those states, particularly here in Michigan, where it was 154,000 votes. You know, Trump had the Speaker of the House, the Speaker of the State Senate in uh, shortly after the election, prior to January 6th, saying, you know, can't you pass a resolution saying that the the election was fraudulent? And they said, Mr. President, there's no such evidence that would overturn the election. Yet he continued to say, like he said in Michigan, like he said in Pennsylvania, more more votes were cast than than voters that were registered in those states. He said that about Detroit. He said that about Pennsylvania and his supporters so much opposed to to Biden just bit drank the lemonade. But, you know, you, you talk about that they don't like to lose. Your party got wiped out in 2018. You lost the presidency in 2020. You massively underperformed in 2022. I think that's the disconnect I don't understand in terms of Republican lawmakers and public officials. Yeah, well, they're, they're scared of a primary. I mean, you look here in Michigan, I mean, we got wiped out. I mean, our the secretary of state, the AG, the governor, the lieutenant governor, uh, the Democrats won by what? Double digits here. The, for the first time in some 40 years, the House and the Senate flipped. Uh, they lost virtually everything. We went, we're now in a minority in the delegation. It's uh, seven Democrats, uh, six Republicans. We were once nine, nine, six uh, before. So it's, uh, you know, the moderate votes, uh, those that are sort of like, I consider myself a Reagan Republican, uh, were really aghast at what happened. But sadly, as you know, they have a, they have a grip on the party. Uh, and we see that here in Michigan, where literally every member of the Michigan Republican delegation endorsed Trump a couple of weeks ago after the second indictment, knowing full well that this third one's coming along. But even this week, I mean, you saw a bunch of uh, Republicans in Ohio uh, that endorsed uh, Trump. Right. You see in Florida, DeSantis, where you'd think that he would have a control over his own congressional delegation, uh, you know, all but two or three of it endorsed Trump. I mean, Texas, right. all, all of those things. He's He's got a grip on the party that's not going to get loose. And I'll be anxious to see the polls when they come out next week in terms of what this latest indictment does as to his supporters knowing that, you know, remember in 2016, Trump lost Iowa. I get all the Trump's emails. He's identified 100,000 Trump supporters that he wants to send to the caucuses early next year. He is he's up by you know, what, 30, 40 points in some of these states, and he's right. taking all the air out of the balloon that the other guys uh, can't, can't even get a, a breath. Uh, Congressman, can I ask you, before I let you go, we, I made this point earlier in the show. Um, in terms of House Republicans, how many of them actually believe Donald Trump won the 2020 election? Not what they say on TV, not what they say uh, to their supporters, what they say in the cloakroom, what they say behind the scenes. How many of your 200, however plus members think that? I think in their heart, they know that Trump lost. 
But what they will tell uh, Manu and, and others uh, in, in the press team is, you know, Trump Trump won. He has every reason to, to uh, lash out. He has every reason to think that, that he won. We shouldn't deny him that opportunity. It's free speech. I mean, though, you know, why aren't we going after Biden in, in the same way? I mean, what they will tell you, I think, is different than what they really what most of them feel in their heart in terms of what went happened. And here we are, what, almost three years later. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I'd appreciate the shout out to Manu, who doesn't get to chase you around in the hallways anymore, which I imagine to some degree is a relief. <laughs> Former Congressman he, Fred he Upton of Michigan. Find me. Yeah, I know he can. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. I look a little lower. To duck Manu is a skill. That's it. it and he was a talented lawmaker at that. That yeah, takes I a bet. special kind of talent. It's good to hear from him, though, speaking truth about yeah. the facts. CNN This Morning continues now. The nation is bracing for the arrest and arraignment of a former president again. This entire area we expect to be flooded with law enforcement as they await for the former president's arrival. It is real life. It's so important for us to follow through and make sure justice is done. If you can get away with this, then what kind of democracy are you going to have? He knew well that he had lost the election. The government has assumed the burden of proving that. They're also saying that he was just exercising his First Amendment right. Free speech doesn't give you the right to engage in a fraudulent conspiracy. You think Jack Smith has more? Oh, yes, I would believe he has a lot more. The special counsel alleges that Eastman was one of the architects behind Trump's attempts to overturn the election. The president and his gaggle of crackpot lawyers asked me to literally reject votes. He'd give largely the same advice, I think, if the situation repeated itself today. You don't even really need John Eastman to come out and tell the story. Jack Smith already has the story. While military officials are claiming small advances in the southeast of the country, Russia continues its drone strikes. The Kremlin is now acknowledging that they are arming civilians in the border areas. Moscow is waging a battle for a global catastrophe. A federal jury decided that Robert Bowers will be sentenced to death. After the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. We must hold accountable those who wish to commit such terrible acts of anti-Semitism, hate, and violence. We're raising generations of traumatized Americans, and that concerns me as a faith leader. Well, good morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour. We're so glad you're with us here on CNN this morning. There's a lot to get to, as you saw, but really another, I know we say it so much, another historic day, a momentous day, and a really important day for our democracy in court today. Yeah, it's not just about an arraignment or the mundane process right. over the course of the next couple of hours. It is much bigger than that. And it's down in Washington. That's where we have all our eyes on right now. Just hours from now, former President Donald Trump set to appear in a courtroom in Washington, D.C. on charges he tried to overturn the 2020 election and hold on to power. Security barriers, they went up overnight. We've also learned that the Secret Service has done a walkthrough of the Washington, D.C. courthouse and law enforcement is monitoring potential threats. Trump is expected to plead not guilty to four counts, including conspiracy to defraud the United States. His fingerprints will be taken digitally. A mugshot will not be taken. We're also getting a preview of what Trump's lawyers are preparing to argue as this case moves forward to trial. That among those, that his claims of election fraud are protected by the First Amendment's free speech, that he was simply following the advice of his lawyers, and that he truly believed the debunked fraud claims. Our Caitlin Collins spoke with former Trump Attorney General Bill Barr about all of these potential legal avenues. He doesn't think they're going to hold up. We'll hear why in moments. 
Let's begin, though, with our colleague Sarah Murray. She is live outside the D.C. courthouse where he will be arraigned today. Yesterday we were talking on the program about is he going to go in person? Is he going to go in Zoom? Um, it's going to be there, usually a mundane process, but a critically important day for American democracy. Yeah, that's right. And obviously by the security perimeter, you have showed this is not going to be just another mundane day in federal court because of the defendant we're talking about, former President Donald Trump. He is due here at 4 p.m. The same federal courthouse here in Washington, D.C., where we have seen so many of the rioters who stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th prosecuted and sentenced. So Donald Trump will arrive here later this afternoon. He will enter the federal courthouse. He will be placed under arrest. We expect his actual appearance in court to be pretty brief. You know, we've now seen this a couple of times before. He'll be advised of his rights. He'll be advised of the charges against him. He may have an opportunity to enter a plea today, which of course we would expect him to plead not guilty. But we're going to be looking to see if Donald Trump does actually say anything in court, if he addresses the court at all. And we're also going to be looking for whether Special Counsel Jack Smith attends in person as he did in Miami when Donald Trump was charged in the classified documents case. Again, a lot of this we are not going to see in real time. We are not going to see on camera. Cameras are not allowed in the federal court. So we're going to be relying on our reporters in the courtroom and these sketches to really get the scene of what it is like for Donald Trump, again, to be in there for his third arraignment after he's been charged for these four counts, guys. Okay, Sarah, we'll be watching very, very closely. Our special coverage begins this afternoon at 3 o'clock Eastern. We'll get back to you soon. Quotes here, nauseating and despicable. This is how former Trump-appointed Attorney General Bill Barr is describing the former president's actions in his first public comments since Trump's latest indictment. He sat down with our Caitlin Collins, and he explained why he now believes that Trump knew he lost the election and shouldn't be anywhere near the Oval Office. Watch. Do you think he knew that he lost the election? Do I personally believe that? Yeah, at first I wasn't sure, but I have come to believe that he uh, w knew well that he had lost the election. And uh, now, what, what I think is important is the government has assumed the burden of proving that. The government, in their indictment, takes the position that he had actual knowledge that he had lost the election and the election wasn't stolen through fraud. And they're going to have to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. Which is a high bar, of course. It's a high bar. Now, that leads me to believe that they, we're only seeing a tip of the iceberg on this. You think Jack Smith has more? Oh, yes. I'm, I, I would believe he has a lot more. And uh, that's one of the things that impressed me about the indictment. It was very spare. And there were a lot of things he could have said in there. And I think there's a lot more to come. And I think they have a lot more evidence as to the, uh, President Trump's state of mind. You said you've come around to the idea that you do think he knew that he lost. Why, why have you come around to that? Uh, number one, comments from people like Bannon and uh, uh, Stone before the election, saying that he was going to claim it was stolen if he, if he was falling behind on election night and that that was the plan of action. I find those statements very troubling. And then you see that he does that on election night. And then the evidence that has come out since that, you know, the press reports and the indictment. We're with us now, CNN political commentator Alyssa Farrah Griffin, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, and CNN political commentator Van Jones. Uh, Ellie, I want to start 
I actually want to start with the interview from last night because it was so methodical and concise in terms of almost taking apart what we've heard from the president's lawyers up to this point. They have not presented a case. The, we've only seen the prosecutor's version of events in the 45-page indictment up to this point. But specifically something that Barr said on uh, the existence of fraud. Take a listen. Here we are two and a half years and still they haven't come forward with any evidence. And in fact, as the indictment puts forward, you, you have Giuliani saying, yeah, we have a lot of theories, but we don't have any evidence. I mean, that's a pretty big admission. No evidence. They wanted to overturn the election and they had no evidence of outcome determinative fraud. Ellie, you keyed on that. Why? So first of all, Phil, this was a fantastic interview. I stayed up way past my bedtime watching it, and I found myself actually agreeing with quite a bit of what Bill Barr said. However, if prosecutors are relying on Bill Barr as a witness, as some sort of divine messenger of truth on the issue of was there election fraud, they're going to have a big problem because, yes, Bill Barr, weeks after the election, December of 2020, did come forward publicly and say there's no evidence of fraud, and he has said that consistently since. The problem is that for months leading up to the election, he was Donald Trump's biggest cheerleader when it came to the issue of fake allegations of election fraud. He went on NPR. He said there's massive risk of election fraud here. NPR had to run it back and say, we allowed the attorney general to tell a falsehood on our air. Bill Barr went in front of Congress in the summer of 2020, said huge risk of fraud in in voting, nothing we can do to police it. He was asked, do you have any proof of that? He said, no, but I just know it is common sense. He came on our air on CNN in September of 2020 and Wolf Blitzer rightly knowing that Bill Barr was pushing the election fraud lie asked him, how many cases has your DOJ actually prosecuted of election fraud and Barr hemmed and hawed? And then Barr said, well, there's one case involving 1,700, 1,700 false ballots, which sounded remarkable until the next day when it came out that that case involved one ballot, one instance of election fraud. DOJ had to run a correction there. So Bill Barr has changed his tune quite a bit. He is not going to be an effective witness for prosecutors on this issue. He's trying to whitewash history, but that won't wash in court. He was behind this lie. He helped spread it during those key months leading up to the election. Uh, Van, taking aside the issues, the real issues that I think Ellie rightly brings up about Bill Barr and what he did and said before versus now. I was so struck by the fact that he really believes that Jack Smith has, quote, a lot more that's not in the indictment specifically on Trump's state of mind, because that's the, that's the key. part that, that's the key. That's, that's going to be hardest thing. to prove. Mm-hmm. And Bill Barr believes that yeah. there is a lot more that's not in this indictment. Look, uh, Bill, Bill Barr was a top cop. He's a prosecutor's prosecutor. So uh, it, it makes sense that uh, he would say that this that is the whole key. Uh, you know, if Trump is really that dumb, uh, then he gets a chance to walk. <laughs> but if he's actually smart and he, and he knew what he was doing, then uh, it's a very different story. You know, what's going on now is that you have these two narratives in the country that are basically the same narrative. Um, the Democrats are saying the president misused his office, used the power of his office to hold on to power. That's what we're saying about Trump. But what the Republicans are saying about the Democrats, the same thing. The, this president is misusing his office, the Department of Justice, to knock out Donald Trump to stay in power. So we're literally in mirror world right now, where both sides have the same accusation against each other. The question you have to ask is this. If you're a parent or a grandparent, and you had a kid that was accused of cheating, and the teacher says, we have evidence that this kid was conspiring to cheat, and you say, well, Johnny, what's the truth? Well, the truth is, the teacher hates me, the students are against me, the principal's an idiot. The entire Department of Education is corrupt. 
who do you believe? I mean, it's a lot harder to believe. It's a lot easier to believe that Donald Trump just didn't want to leave office and was conspiring with his friends. It's a lot harder to believe what the Republicans are saying, which is the entire system, yeah. local prosecutors, state prosecutors, federal prosecutors are all conspiring against poor little Johnny. It's also a situation of you know, show your work, right? Like show your work. there's an indictment, there are three indictments. That's the thing that always gets me. It's not apples to apples, not because no. it's one side or the other. It's because one side has facts and evidence. And, facts. and if you want to challenge that in court and defeat it in court, by all means, mm -hmm. that's why the system's there. The other side just throws the allegation we out. Don't, but we don't know what Trump's lawyers are going to do yet. No, but I mean more so about like, yeah. is Biden ordering yeah. the justice department based yes. on what? Yes. I'm not like I would happily, happily yeah. have and break that story if it existed. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, if you know, call me immediately. I would, I would love to write the yeah, story. We just don't have evidence where there is evidence in terms of what the former president did. I want to ask you. Actually, I want to start with this. You might have some idea of what evidence they may have in terms of uh, why the president's what the president's mindset was because you testified to this issue specifically. Yes. We've shown the video a, a number of times from it. What's your sense to that? to Poppy's point, of what more they may have. Well, I, and I do agree with the attorney general. I think that there's more here because um, I think the shakiest part of this in indictment and following case is going to be the mindset and whether or not he actually believed the election. The, the, this free speech argument, I actually think, is a very shallow and weak argument because you can say just about anything in this country, but it's when it gets into fraudulent behavior and conspiracy, that's actions, that's conduct, that's not about a matter of speech. But I know that Donald Trump knew that he lost the election. And what this, to Vance's point, what this argument is going to rely on is despite the overwhelming evidence, demonstrable evidence that he lost and that every reasonable person around him knew he did, he still intellectually just didn't have the capacity to understand it. This is basically going to be the Donald Trump was too stupid to know he lost argument. I think he's going to hate it when his, when his lawyers start having to make this case. Mm -hmm. And I would keep my eye on that because... It is, there's not going to be, and there might be some fanfare of relitigating, like we want to go to these seven states and for the 20th time see if there was fraud and if those election results could have been different, but it's ultimately going to come down to he truly believed this even though it was untrue. Uh, Ellie, can you also explain why the argument that I just had relied on my lawyers is going to be super dicey to make in court because then you, if you got to put Trump on the stand, then you pierce attorney-client privilege. Explain that to folks. Yeah, so there is such a defense that a defendant can raise in court called advice of counsel, which is essentially, my lawyers blessed this. My lawyers told me it was okay to do this. What am I to know better than them? There is risk in making this argument, high risk. First of all, you waive, you give up the attorney-client privilege. So if Donald Trump actually makes that claim in court, all of his communications with all of his lawyers about anything become fair game for cross-examination. Donald Trump would almost certainly have to take the stand to make that defense. We can only imagine what a cross-examination of Donald Trump would look like. And it's not a free-for-all. You can't show that your lawyers gave you advice that was patently ridiculous, that nobody would have reasonably believed. So it is there as a defense avenue, but it's a really tough road to, to go down. I think you'd put up all those uh, then administration lawyers, by the way, who the indictment lists out, who told him the exact opposite. Um, Alyssa, can I ask you, your former boss, uh, Vice President Mike, one of your former bosses was indicted. Uh, the other one was the vice president is at the center of that mm -hmm. indictment. He's, he spoke about it. He was asked about it on the campaign trail. I want to listen to this. Anyone who puts themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. It wasn't just that they asked for a pause. Uh, the president uh, specifically asked me and his 
gaggle of, uh, of crackpot lawyers asked me to literally reject votes, essentially to overturn the election. Well, I, I love Mike Pence unleashed. Listen, um, I know that's what it literally. I was like, wow, that's, yeah. it's a lot. His Mike lips Pence. to God's ears. I think he's going to turn out to be the most important witness uh, in this case. I think it's very likely that he's going to take the stand. Um, he knows better than most people because there were conversations, to, to the best of my knowledge, that were directly between just him and the president. No former mm -hmm. president, no staff around. He did keep contemporaneous notes, and I applaud him for being unequivocal and telling the truth about this. When you look at the GOP field, there's really only a few who are telling the truth about what we all saw with our own eyes yeah. on January 6th and the weeks leading up to it. Man. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I think that guy sounds like a leader. He sounds like he's got conviction. He sounds like he sounds like the guy who did stand up to Donald Trump and who did, you know, refuse to cave in. Uh, where has he been? Yeah. More <laughs> of that, Mike. <laughs> More of that. Like up, up until now, what you've mainly seen is like, is, is this kind of him, hemming and hawing? You know, it could be the fact that he doesn't have that much left to lose. Uh, he may not even make the debate stage. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when you if you're if you're going to uh, take a stand today is the time to make that stand. People are paying attention now in a different way. You have these other cases up until now that maybe weren't as much a threat to the country. This is a big this is the big, big deal. And he's taking a big stand. And I think it's a good thing. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch in not just the hours ahead, but days, weeks ahead. Van Jones, Alyssa, uh, Ali, thanks, guys. We appreciate it. Yeah, coming up, so we're going to be joined by someone who conducted a years-long investigation into Trump before his success for successor filed charges in New York. We're talking about former Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance. He's our guest. And pop star Lizzo facing an explosive lawsuit from three of her former dancers. She's accused of harassment, body shaming, and fueling a, quote, hostile work environment. Those dancers were, will join us live ahead. So just a few hours from now, Donald Trump will be appearing in a courtroom in D.C. where he is expected to plead not guilty to four counts. Those include conspiracy to defraud the United States of America. This is Trump's third arrest in four months. The two previous indictments were related to falsifying business records and the alleged mishandling of classified documents. But if you add them up, Trump is facing 78 criminal charges in three different cases right now as he is the Republican frontrunner for the White House. Just think about that. Our next guest conducted a years-long investigation into Trump before his successor filed charges, former Manhattan District Attorney and partner at Baker, Mackenzie Sarbance, joins us now. It's really nice to have you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so, to gosh, 78, three different cases, but this one is different. Do you believe that this case that Jack Smith has just brought, this indictment, is more perilous for Trump or Mar-a-Lago or Bragg's case? You're a former uh, Well, I, th I think the former president faces real risk in every case that's presented to him and, and is now public. In the Manhattan case, I think it is unlikely the president faces jail if he's convicted. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think that is less likely outcome uh, in the Manhattan case. Uh, these two federal indictments, I think, are, uh, uh, are, are on their face quite, quite strong. Uh, and I think that's the purpose of how the indictments were crafted to let the president, the public know exactly why these charges were brought. One thing I keep thinking about when we put them all together, and we'll wait and see if there's an indictment brought in Georgia. If Trump, if this doesn't go to trial before the general election, if Trump becomes president, he can essentially get rid of all the federal stuff. But state, brag, he can't. No, he can't. Uh, and uh, he, he can't. And uh, thank goodness for a system of justice that 
you know, that, that is, gives the president certain powers in the federal system, but not over the states. Uh, so the reality is that if the president, by some stroke of uh, luck, uh, is able to quash the federal indictments, he will face, presumably, uh, an indictment in Georgia, which appears aligned to many of the same factual elements we're going to see today, uh, and we saw in Smith's second indictment. Can you help me from a technical and logistical perspective? I'm very stuck on there are so many, right. three, potentially four. There is such a compressed time window before the election. Um, is there communication right now? Should there be communication right now between uh, New York, Georgia, the special counsel's team, in terms of who goes first, who goes second? How do you structure this if you want to get this done in a quick manner? Well, I think there's two different groups, or actually three. One is defense counsel and, right. and their view on... And they have a say. Uh, they have a say. <laughs> they have uh, a bigger say. And, and frankly... Uh, the court will of necessity make sure that the appearance isn't that somehow right. the constitutional rights of, of the defendant are being uh, set aside. Then you have the prosecutors uh, and whether or not they should be communicating about priorities and timing. Uh, and then you have the judges. Now, I think each judge, for example, Judge Bershon in New York, is not going to want to be given short shrift uh, uh, in terms of the timing of his court, uh, the indictment came down first. Uh, but I think it's also true that as a practical matter, uh, the severity and complexity of the federal indictments are more severe, uh, more complex. And I, at the end of the day, push comes to shove, I could see the federal case, or the state cases being delayed and put behind the federal cases. That's, that's just a prediction, mm -hmm. but not a guarantee. But given what you just told us before, that the state cases would remain if Trump becomes president again and quashes the federal probes. If you were Alvin Bragg and, you know, your colleagues uh, in the Justice Department came to you and Jackson said, we got to get ours in before yours. Can you delay? Would you delay? I'm asking what you would do in your former job. Well, I would listen to them uh, and, and take into consideration their points. So in our own investigation, of uh, the former president and his company, which resulted in the indictments of his company for, for tax and other, mm -hmm. uh, other fraud, uh, I was asked by the Southern District to stand down for a period of time uh, because they indicated to me that they... Which was remarkable that that happened, by the way. Well, I think it was, I think it was, and I, my response was, yes, okay. I will, because I felt that was the right thing to do. So it's not as if conversations don't happen. It's not as if the, the state prosecutor can't, you know, acknowledge uh, what he thinks about the priority. And in my case, I did. Ultimately, we ended up going twice to the Supreme Court, and it all sort of worked out in the end. But uh, I would certainly take into account Jack Smith's requests, but I'm not guaranteeing that I would agree with him. Can I ask real quick? Yeah. Uh, the president had a huge fundraising burst after the New York indictment. Democrats that I talked to are frustrated with the New York indictment. Republicans point to the New York indictment Bill Barr did last night with Caitlin Collins as a boon to them politically. Do you think that's the case? Well, I think as a practical matter, it turned out that the state indictment did generate uh, attention and fundraising capacity for the president. And his polling went up right after polling. it. That said, um, you know, Mr. Bragg thought he had a case that needed to be brought. And uh, for him to walk away from that case uh, was something he was not prepared to do. 
So I think Mr. Bragg is going to be criticized perhaps for indicting the president on what people believe are perhaps less serious charges. Uh, but he was the Manhattan DA, and he had to make a call, and he made his call. Do you th- now that you've seen what Bragg brought, do you, do you think it needed to be brought? Would you have brought it that way? Well, I really don't want to comment, because I don't know all the facts Bragg Well, Bragg you read. Knows. You read the um, indictment. Well, sure, I've, I've read the indictment. Um, I think the indictment, uh, the challenge for that case, I think, is ultimately may be a challenge on whether or not evidentiarily you can use federal, f- a federal law right. to bump up a state law from a misdemeanor to a felony. I think that was one of the reasons that I felt uh, uh, that I was cautious about uh, about bringing that case. Uh, we'll see what happens. But look, right now. But is the, that a probably not? No, it's not a probably not. It's it's uh, it's we didn't bring that case, uh, and the answer isn't why did why did Syvans not bring it? The answer is why did Alvin Bragg decide to bring it? Fair. I think he believes that they have a case, a strong case, and they can prove it. And um, okay. it's not a case that we brought. We were focusing on, uh, uh, on the pattern of larger fraud in terms of his business affairs. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so yeah. divergent, divergent investigations. Um, still 78 charges yeah. uh, over the course of three, soon, potentially soon to be four indictments. It's a remarkable time in history. Well, so it, it's, uh, I don't... It's remarkable that one person can be indicted three times in, in four months and maybe four times in four months. That's a hard thing to get done. Yeah. So, you know, so he's, uh, the president has real challenges in front of him, obviously. Uh, he thinks that uh, he can sort of bluff his way out of this. And the courts, I think, what's going to happen in court, I think, is the m- most important. What happens in the public now, you'll have divergent opinions. But once the judges get their hands on the case, a lot of the nonsense stops yeah. uh, in the, when it gets into the courtroom. Good All right. Point. So, Vance, a very important and fascinating moment in history. A little Thank scary to some much. degree as well. Appreciate your time, sir. Yeah. Thank you. Well, U.S. markets taking a tumble after credit ratings agency Fitch downgraded the U.S. debt for the first time in more than 11 years. Now, they just announced another major downgrade. Also, a second human body recovered in the Rio Grande River. That is near that barrier of buoys set up to deter migrants from crossing into the U.S., the one that the government is suing Texas over. We'll take you live to the state ahead. So we're just a few hours away from the market opening. Investors waiting to see if stocks are going to rebound. Stocks took a dive in an apparent response to a lot. Partly the Fitch downgrade, some other stuff too. Fitch downgraded the U.S. debt from its highest AAA rating to AA+. First time we've seen that since 2011. Julia Chatterley is with us in studio. Good morning. Great to have you. Normally you're so busy preparing for your own show. We're glad to have you here. What's going on with the market? Is this really about the downgrade? Not really. It's a series of events. Some of them, and not all of them, are bad, actually. Yesterday we had great jobs data. The other thing is, the markets are doing incredibly well this year. You've got the S&P 500 up 18%. The Nasdaq up more than, what, 30%. Taking a bit of money off the table here, the credit rating situation was a sort of good reason perhaps to do that. It was a warning shot hmm. from Fitch. And as they said, look, the numbers tell the story, and I would completely agree with them. Debt's too high. Our interest costs in America are enormous. And that was the other thing that happened yesterday. The Treasury came out and said, hey, we're going to borrow a heck of a lot of money 
in the third quarter, more than people expected. And that hit a sore spot that Fitch had already created. It's just so interesting, the timing. I mean, big-name bankers, Jamie Dimon, yeah. saying this makes no sense right now. Bank of America coming out, confounded at why this happened now. There is a question about timing. There is a question about timing. You can say, why now? You could also say, why not now? None of these things are new. The debt's pretty out of control. Their political situation is relatively toxic. The entitlements and relatively. security. Relatively. <laughs> I'm being diplomatic. The British She's a Brit. Uh, yeah, so. keep calm and carry on. Um, <laughs> really messy, Poppy, for you. Um, none of this changed. In yeah. fact, it's actually less than it was a couple of months ago. Um, why not now, I think, yeah. would, be, yeah. would be the answer. I think um, Warren Buffett, though, said it best today, someone who you know very well, and he said there are some things to worry about. This is one of them. Yeah. In the end, you buy American if there's a crisis, and that hasn't changed. The Oracle of Omaha with, with perspective. Yes, we agree. Thank you, Julia. Appreciate it very much. All right, we'll also knew this morning two bodies were found in the area barrier of buoys in the Rio Grande River, just over three miles apart. The cause of death and the identities of the two deceased people, that remains unclear. This comes as lawyers in Texas are trying to figure out how many migrant families have been separated at the border. CNN's Rosa Flores is live in Houston. Uh, Rosa, I want to start with the, the bodies that have been discovered. What do we know about the second body that was discovered? You know, Mexico's Ford Ministry is not releasing a lot of information about this. All they say is that the cause and manner of death has not been identified and the nationality has not been identified. But Phil, what I can tell you is I can give you context about just how deadly this portion of the Rio Grande is. I've been to this area doing stories about how deadly it is for migrants. Just last year when I was there, I interviewed the sheriff. He was finding migrant bodies on the Rio Grande every single day. So much so, the medical examiner ran out of room to store bodies. The local funeral home ran out of room. The sheriff had to get a, um, a mobile morgue. And at the end of the day, the community had to start burying bodies. Now, back to the buoys. The big question here, Phil, is were the buoys a contributing factor in one or both of these deaths? We don't know about that. But what we do know is that it should be investigated. And at least Mexico's foreign ministry says that they are investigating. Phil? Rosa, I also want to ask you about, you know, you see family separation in a headline and it immediately grabs your attention based on you know, the last five or six years on immigration. It's now back in a headline. Help us understand what's happening with this iteration of family separation. You know, I've talked to several attorneys. One attorney says that at least 26 migrant families have been separated, that they were all Venezuelan asylum seekers, and that these migrants describe the scene as Texas DPS officers in airboats or on land, waving them on and then rounding them up and separating them. How does a separation actually look like? According to these clients for, from this one attorney, they say that the father of a family unit is arrested for criminal trespass under state law and that the mother and the children or child are turned over to U.S. immigration authorities. And Texas DPS is admitting to this, telling CNN in a statement, quote, there have been instances in which DPS has arrested male migrants on state charges who were with their family when the alleged crime occurred. Children and their mothers were never separated, but instead turned over to U.S. Border Patrol. Now, according to these attorneys, most of these uh, uh, criminal trespassing arrests were happening at a public park in Eagle Pass called Shelby Park. Well, Phil, in an interesting twist, earlier 
This week, city council in Eagle Pass overturned the affidavit that allows Texas DPS to make these arrests in a public park. We've asked Texas DPS about this. We haven't heard back, but it's going to be interesting, Phil, to see if Texas DPS will continue to be at this public park because they've deployed concertino wire shipping containers. They've set up a staging area there. So we're continuing to follow up to see what happens with this. Phil. All right. Keep us posted on that, Rosa. Thanks so much. Special Counsel Jack Smith praising the officers who protected the Capitol and democracy on January 6th. One of those officers, of course, Brian Sicknick, who died the day after the attack, and his family will be with us next. The men and women of law enforcement who defended the U.S. Capitol on January 6th are heroes. They are patriots and they are the very best of us. They did not just defend a building or the people sheltering in it. They put their lives in the line to defend who we are as a country and as a people. Special Counsel Jack Smith praising the officers who protected the Capitol and democracy during the January 6th riot. Smith called them heroes as he announced a third indictment against former President Donald Trump Tuesday night. This one over efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Special counsel accused the former president of spreading lies about election fraud and fueling the angry mob that descended on the Capitol. The mob that brutally attacked officers with flagpoles, bear spray, police barricades. According to a government watchdog, Trump's supporters injured more than 100 officers during that attack. And one brave officer lost his life the very next day. Doctors say Officer Brian Sicknick suffered several strokes after hours of protecting the United States Capitol from the angry rioters vowing to overturn the 2020 election. Joining us now are the late officer's mother, Gladys, and his brother, Craig. Uh, thank you very much for being here. Um, thank you for having us on. I, I want to start, you, uh, I'm down in Washington normally. I've seen you guys at the January 6th hearings. Uh, you, you have uh, had a very strong presence in D.C. and had a very big impact in Washington, D.C. Uh, this indictment was different, I think, than everything we've seen. What was your reaction to it, Gladys? Um, it made me feel good that something good came out of this. And I, I want to thank Jack Smith for doing what he did. And also the, the committee, the January 6th committee for, if it wasn't for them, this all wouldn't have happened. This would have all been swept under the rug. And um, so I'm just hoping that it helps with, with you know, for closure for the police, especially the police officers that were hurt. We've talked a lot about, and we've had you on before, we've talked a lot about not wanting Brian's death to be forgotten and for it to stand for, for something and all the good that he was in the world. What gets you to that? Where, how do we get there? I don't know. I'm having a hard time. As I said before we came on here, Brian's birthday would have been on last, last Sunday. His birthday was, son, was last Sunday, and, and he had a hard time, really hard time. Because I think, because we're not down there so much anymore, that I think all of a sudden I'm grieving. <laughs> grieving just kicked in. I didn't have time before because we were always constantly on the move and doing. Yeah. It was shock. Yeah. Craig, you know, I think you guys are still in contact with a number of uh, Brian's former colleagues. Uh, how... Capitol Police, the police departments down there were very rattled afterwards. And I think to your point, grief hits at different times, dealing with it hits at different times. How are they doing, the folks that you still talk to? I can't 
speak for them per se, but uh, like us, they've had, um, you know, trying to figure out what happened, why it happened. Um, of course, it's a loss, and they lost many officers over a relatively short period of time. Uh, Brian was the first. A few others passed away from suicides a little later on, and uh, there was a stabbing in the following weeks. Um, they've had a very rough couple of years. Um, I said, as far as where they're going to go long term, I don't know. I know they have. Uh, we were at a uh, graduation ceremony for a class a while back, so they've started actually getting people through there again. Um, but it's it's tough for everybody involved, and, and that was supposed to be one of the safest police forces to work on in the country. Yeah, I was very happy when he became a police officer in Washington because it's a very safe place to be. Of course, you never could have imagined that, no. that this. Mm -mm. What has the broader impact been on your family? I mean, you talk so importantly about how grief comes when it comes for people at different points over years. What about the others in your family who have to be struggling? Yeah, it, it's hard for everybody. Yeah, they were, they were close with, their, with him, and <laughs> he was a lot younger, so he was, uh, you know. <laughs> he was my little shadow. <laughs> yeah, oh. it was. But he, he, you know, never had a yell at the kid, ever, never. Wow. So he was just as good as he, as handsome as he was, that's how good he was. Wow. As a parent, that's a remarkable. I, yeah. That's a, uh, well, that was the experimental model. And <laughs> <laughs> um, can I ask you what you've been through, what you've seen in the wake of this indictment uh, this week? What comes to mind when you think of the fact that the former president is now the clear leading contender to be the Republican nominee to be the president? He could be president again. It's entirely possible. It's very, very scary to me because what, what really stands out in my mind is that if he becomes president, I hope he doesn't, that he'll pardon all these people that have been behind bars, that belong behind bars, and more that coming behind him, that them that should be in jail. And... Um, and then he said, you know, what is he going to do? He's going to be in jail and, <laughs> and run the office of the White House from jail? I don't, I don't know how this is all going to work. It doesn't make any sense. It, and how people follow him. I just don't get it. It's frightening how so many people so strongly believe in this demagogue that... You know, you look at anything in his past. I've read, his, I've read books from his niece. Um, I've read books written about people who have served in, you know, in his cabinet and the ancillary end of it. And the man is a sham, and he has been his entire life. And he's an extremely good con artist, apparently. And he keeps the con going. He's had so many people convinced that he's something super special. I mean, why would, a multi, why would somebody who claims he's a billionaire have to have... You know, middle class and poorer people pay for his legal bills through his various PACs. It's, it boggles the mind. Well, we will continue to think about your brother, your beloved son, um, throughout this. And I'm sorry that you're going through so much grief right now. You're on our minds. We appreciate you being here. Well, we appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. I said, hopefully we can um, move forward as a, as a nation and somehow get people to listen to reason. Thank you. Ahead for us, another tragic story. The wife of the suspect in the Google Beach murders is now speaking out about her husband's alleged crimes, and her attorney joins us.
So new this morning, CNN confirms the wife of the Gilgo Beach murder suspect has spoken to her husband by phone. Rex Yerman, who has pleaded not guilty, appeared in court in Long Island this week. He's accused of killing three women and dumping their bodies on the now infamous Gilgo Beach. More than a decade ago, he's also the prime suspect in a fourth murder. On Tuesday, prosecutors handed over a trove of evidence to Hurman's lawyers, including hard drives, thousands of pages of documents and surveillance video. Take a look at these photos from inside of the family home, piles and piles of boxes and personal items, and a hole cut out of a vinyl bathtub. Robert uh, Massadino, Dinio, hope I pronounce that correctly, sir. The attorney for Hurman's wife is with us. Macedonia, thank you. My apologies. And I do appreciate your time so much this morning because there have been so many developments in this case so far, especially this week. What can you can you share with us what your client spoke with her husband? I know she's filed for divorce um, about. Uh, I wasn't present for those conversations. I know they've spoken from the facility. Um, those calls are all recorded, so we've instructed her to keep it limited to basic information, nothing about the allegations or anything that's going on in the media. Uh, so I'm not sure what the, exactly the conversations were about or how long they were, but I know they've spoken. They have children, um, grown children, and uh, she is going through this, as are, are her children. I just wonder if you could speak to, you know, beyond the law, just the human impact on them from all of this. Well, the human impact, they were displaced from their residence for a little over two weeks. You know, prior to two and a half weeks ago, their life was whatever was normal for them. They were displaced out of their residence, living out of the cars and family and friends staying, you know, at hotels, and then returned to a home that was totally destroyed, upheaval. Um, every item was emptied out of every dresser drawer. Bean bags that they were using, they're sleeping on now, were cut open. The backyard was dug up. Um, you know, PlayStation 5, which the daughter used to play with, was broken in half. It should have been just total destruction of any personal property that was in the house, which I, I don't believe was necessary to um, extract any forensic evidence out of the house. It just seems to be a lot of over, overdue, overdone damage. Do, has your client been contacted directly by investigators? Because I'm wondering if she would cooperate, potentially testify against Hurman, um, or would she assert spousal immunity? She, she has not been contacted, or we have not been contacted by the investigators, and she has not been interviewed. You know, we're, we're assuming one thing. We're assuming that all the allegations that we're reading about are true. This is completely emotionally overwhelming for Asa because she knows what we know. She only knows what the media is saying. We are assuming it's true. She does not believe or had no knowledge any of this stuff was going on. So she's completely blindsided by this whole so, course of events that's taken place in the last three weeks. Are you saying your client believes without a doubt? that her husband is guilty of these murders? At, at this point in time, her head is spinning. The only thing she knows is what the media is doing, and she's been bombarded by the media 24-7 with allegations, allegations, and the DA put, put forth a 32-page bail application which detailed their case. We don't know that to be true. He's presumed yeah. innocent, but we've all convicted him in the media, and she's, at this point in time, she's keep trying to keep her own sanity and her children's sure. sanity together, not even addressing what the allegations are against him. So d just trying to get to some clarity here from what, what you said before so, so our viewers understand, um, does she have reason to believe that her husband may be guilty of these crimes? She, she has no reason to believe that because she, she, if, if it's true, and I assume, we're going to assume that for a second, it was a complete double life. She had no knowledge. 
no recollection of anything that would have given a hint that anything this was going on. So if it's proven to be true, it's a complete double life that she knew nothing about and is completely blindsided about in the last two weeks. So she hasn't been contacted by investigators. Does that also mean, I, I suppose, because there's a big question of DNA and our, our reporting from our colleagues here has been that, that uh, prosecutors would like more DNA samples, for example, from Hurman, from, from the home. This means she hasn't been contacted for any additional DNA samples, correct? We have not been, no, we have not been contacted to give any DNA samples. Okay. Um, one, of the, one of the other questions uh, to people, you just said, look, if, this, if these allegations are true, it would have been a double, complete double lie. There are, there are people who are wondering, who believe correct. that he is guilty, obviously families of victims here as well. And they are saying, how could you not have known? Would you like to speak to, to that? How could she not have known? Like I said, if, if it's true, because the people have convicted him already. Once the arrest is made, you know, we're presumed innocent in this country, and we'd like everybody to have that presumption. But once the arrest is made, a majority of the public has already convicted him, saying they must be right, this must be true. So then we're transposing that onto her. How could you not know your husband did this? So at this point in time, this is all overwhelming to her. Her whole life has been put into upheaval, as of her children's. Her husband is sitting in jail, accused of being you know, a serial killer. So she's sorting out her own emotions, taking care of her children, before even addressing whether or not these allegations are true. We'll get to that at another point in time when she starts sorting out her own emotions. She needs to survive right now. Robert Macedonia, I appreciate your time this And we'll morning. see the evidence play out. And we'll, we'll... Yeah. Go ahead. Thank you. I appreciate it. I said we'll see what... Sorry, didn't mean to cut him off there. We appreciate his time. All right, we're just hours away from former President Trump arriving in the nation's capital to be arraigned yet again. What to expect? That's ahead. Also, Trump appointed Attorney General Bill Barr has a lot to say about his former boss's third indictment. He sat down with our Caitlin Collins. You'll see that extraordinary interview. That's ahead. Well, good morning, everyone. It is 8 a.m. here on the East Coast, 5 a.m. out west. We're glad you're with us for a really momentous day on at, at the nation's capital. Yeah, in the nation's capital, also for the entire country, kind of the start of something that I think is going to carry on potentially to, through an election. After, Everything maybe. matters right now. It really does. Hours from now, former President Trump will appear in a D.C. courtroom. He will be arraigned for the third time in the last four months. Law enforcement officers have put up barriers. They did that overnight, preparing for the former president's arrival. We're live right outside the courthouse. And one of Trump's alleged co-conspirators is conservative attorney John Eastman. The criminal indictment alleges co-conspirator two attempted to implement a plan for then-Vice President Pence to block certification of the 2020 election. One of Eastman's attorneys will join us ahead. Also, three dancers who worked for Lizzo have filed a lawsuit against her, accusing her of creating a hostile work environment. Those dancers join us live this hour as Lizzo issues a new statement about their claims. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Here's where we begin in just hours. Former President Trump will depart his Bedminster Golf Club in New Jersey on his plane. He'll fly to Washington for what is his third arraignment in four months. This arraignment comes after the historic indictment that came down Tuesday from the special counsel Jack Smith's team of investigators. It alleges Trump's involvement in efforts to undermine democracy and overturn the 2020 election. 
So Trump will arrive at the D.C. courthouse. He will be processed. No mugshot will be taken. Then he will appear before magistrate judge. He is expected, expected to plead not guilty. And this hearing means Trump is returning to the epicenter, very close to all of these alleged crimes. The federal courthouse, less than a mile from where rioters stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Yeah, it's also less than a mile from the ellipse, where Trump spoke on that same day before hundreds of supporters telling them to, quote, fight like hell and calling for them to march on the Capitol. The barriers are up around the courthouse ahead of today's historic arraignment as law enforcement beefs up security. Trump's attorneys, they're already previewing a potential defense strategy, citing the First Amendment, saying he was just listening to lawyers, and saying Trump truly believed his own lies that he won the election. We have team coverage covering this from outside the courthouse. Let's start with CNN's Caitlin Polance and Sarah Murray. Caitlin, first, walk us through what we're going to see today. Well, Poppy and Phil, Donald Trump will be here in person for his initial appearance and very likely arraignment at 4 p.m. inside this courthouse. But right now, the scene is not particularly hectic. There's a lot of security around us uh, and there's a lot of presentations that are that are taking place, things that are being set up to make sure that things don't get out of hand. But it really looks like quite a normal commute on a Monday morning or on a Thursday morning and the type of day where the court will have some of their regular business going on throughout the day. But whenever we do get into the afternoon for this 4 p.m. hearing, it is going to be quite a scene, at least inside the court. There are a lot of provisions to make sure the public and the media have access to see Donald Trump when he is in court. But there will be no photos and no video. There's going to be a lot of opportunity for the special counsel's office itself to come and witness these proceedings. We did see special counsel Jack Smith in Florida at his appearance there in federal court, physically be present for that. It's quite possible Jack Smith would be here again today in the courtroom with Donald Trump, but no photos, no video of him walking in the court. There will be sketches of him, and we do expect him to have a relatively short proceeding before Magistrate Judge Mokshila Upadhyay. She's going to be essentially just walking him through what his charges are. He also may have the opportunity to enter his not guilty plea at this time, but it really is quite a significant day in that we are so close to where the Capitol riot took place, and these judges, this courthouse, People in this courthouse have seen so many people come in as criminal defendants, so much testimony from Metropolitan Police, Capitol Police, and other people who were harmed on January 6th. And now Donald Trump himself is going to be here facing those charges. Yeah, the threads that connect this together from the ellipse to the march to the Capitol, to the Capitol, to the rioters in the Capitol being charged in the courthouse behind you. Now the former president will be there today as well. Also, it's August, so the commute should be slow in Washington, D.C. We'll see how it turns out in the hours ahead. Sarah, I think the critical question for me is what happens next, right? We've seen this two times already. In this case particular, what are we expecting in the days and weeks ahead? Well, I mean, look, in the immediate term, Donald Trump is going to return to Bedminster later on this afternoon. We're, of course, going to be on the lookout for any opportunity he takes to speak publicly about what happens today. In the past, we've seen him make these very bombastic speeches, use them to raise money, use them to rile up his base. But I think when you look beyond that, I mean, this is someone who, again, is the leading uh, Republican candidate for president who is now going to have to juggle three different court proceedings, three different criminal court proceedings on his calendar while he is trying 
trying to figure out how to run for president. We've seen over the last couple of weeks how expensive this endeavor has been for him to defend himself, to defend the people around him who have gotten caught up in these court proceedings, and also just logistically fitting in all of these various court appearances that he's going to have to do across these three different cases while running for president is going to be tricky. And I think we're going to continue to see his defense team make the argument that things should be pushed back, things should be delayed because of his candidacy. We'll see how that goes with this judge here in Washington. All right, Kaylin Poland, Sarah Murray, you guys have a very busy day ahead. Thanks, guys. This morning, we were just talking about the security preparations, all those barriers put up overnight because the former president is going to be arraigned today. Secret Service agents, supervisors conducting a walkthrough of the courthouse. Law enforcement officials also monitoring, of course, online what people are saying, any potential threats, protests, etc. Trump will appear just blocks from the U.S. Capitol in the same building where hundreds of January 6th defendants have been convicted. Our Shimon Porcupine joins us here now. Good morning, Shimon. They're preparing for what hopefully will not happen. Any specific threats this morning? No, there are no specific threats. Certainly nothing credible. You know, it's the usual chatter that law enforcement officials see uh, online that certainly they're monitoring and has them somewhat concerned, but nothing out of the ordinary surrounding uh, really these events, right? We've now done this three times. Um, each city kind of does their own thing. New York City, we, we saw really an extensive uh, amount of security. In Florida, we didn't see much security. But really out here in D.C., I want to start showing you a little bit, Poppy. They're, they're taking this pretty seriously. You know, they have these dumpsters out already. Uh, they will presumably be closing off traffic because the street here that we're on, I want to show you, is where the former president is going to drive uh, down and into the courthouse here just up the block. Uh, what we expect is for his motorcade to arrive here, and then he will enter here on C Street, go into this area, and then there is a garage that they will drive him down into. And so we will not get to see uh, the former president walking into the courthouse. Once he gets here, he walks, drives through that garage, he will be technically arrested. And so this is the street here. A lot of focus right now from law enforcement is on this street. Uh, this is it's now already closed off. You can see Washington, D.C. police, which are responsible for the security outside the courthouse. Of course, there's the U.S. Marshals inside and there are federal protective services which monitor and secure the outside. But right now, all the focus is on this area. They have closed this street down. They're not allowing people to park their cars. And you can see uh, all of the law enforcement officials out here. They've placed these metal barriers here. These barriers, we're seeing it all across the courthouse here. And also, Poppy, we're starting to see uh, some other security around the Capitol, which is pretty significant. The Capitol is just um, really diagonally across the street from the courthouse. So that is a concern for law enforcement officials here as well this morning. But so far right now, what we're seeing are the preparations get underway as we await the president, the former president's arrival here around four o'clock. Okay, Shimon, thank you to you and your team. Well, former Attorney General Bill Barr, who served under Trump, spoke to our Caitlin Collins about Trump's third indictment. You'll recall Barr resigned at the end of 2020 after the election. He publicly rebuked Trump by saying he saw no evidence of voter fraud. Barr was also asked about the classified documents case and the two men accused of conspiring with Trump to help conceal those documents. Listen. These, these two individuals, Nauta and the... Carlos. And Carlos are dragged into this thing, their lives turned upside down by Trump to pursue 
you know, this uh, caper of his. And he leaves in his wake ruined lives like this, the people who went up to Capitol Hill, these individuals, many of the people who served him in government that got sucked into things. And he just leaves all this uh, carnage in his wake. Do you think he cares about that? No, he doesn't care about that. Loyalty is a one-way street for him. Joining us now, CNN anchor of The Source, our friend Caitlin Collins. That was quite an interview. I don't know if I've ever heard him so candid and also saying all of these things that could be really important for prosecutors. What struck you? Yeah. I mean, it was it was amazing. As someone who covered, obviously, the Trump administration and Bill Barr when he was attorney general, and he's mm-hmm. not someone, you know, he has been very blunt in recent weeks and months since the legal troubles have begun piling up for his former boss, but he, he doesn't speak out very often. And so when he does, and he took this moment last night um, to really cover a broad range of the legal issues that are facing Trump, and he's someone who knows Trump well. I mean, he was in these meetings with him. He watched how he led as president. He watched how he interacted um, with people who worked for him. And so that comment there, talking about how now these two co-defendants are ensnared in this indictment in, in Florida and tying it back to, to what we're going to see today, to how Trump inspired people to go to the Capitol, was kind of this amazing moment to, to listen to Bill Barr and his mm-hmm. assessment of that, which was really blunt and saying that Trump leaves this path of carnage in his wake and that he does not care about it, he believes, um, and was kind of sending it as a message. And I also asked him right after that, if he had advice for Trump's attorneys now, given, of course, Evan Corcoran is another attorney who is also involved in the in the Mar-a-Lago case. And Bill Barr kind of laughed out loud and said his advice for them was to get a lot of insurance. <laughs> um, I asked- all conspiracies involve speech and all fraud involves speech. So, uh, you know, free speech doesn't give you the right to engage in a fraudulent conspiracy. I don't think this defensive... Uh, advice of counsel uh, is going to go forward because I think the president would have to get on the stand and subject himself to cross-examination in order to raise that. And he'd also have to waive attorney-client privilege. And, and what would happen if he got on the stand? I think, uh, I think it, would not look, it would not come out very well for him. At first, I wasn't sure, but I have come to believe that he uh, knew well that he had lost the election. Um, I, I think, what, Caitlin, what was most interesting to me was, besides the length of the interview, well done on that, uh, and your team, was how kind of methodically he, and in a very concise manner, took apart various elements of the Trump legal defense. You're talking about those lawyers. What his lawyers have attempted to put up so far, at least that they're considering uh, as his defense. Um, but also kind of digging in on the case itself. Where, from your sense of things, did he think there were potential issues for Jack Smith and his team? Yeah, so I wasn't sure what he would say about the the latest indictment for the January 6th case because he has said previously, you know, he did expect an indictment to probably come there, but he thought there would be some free speech issues in that. And he said that he was impressed, is the word that he used, by this indictment, talking about how he felt that Jack Smith and his team were restrained, that they didn't try to take uh, unnecessary digs, essentially, at Trump, he felt like, in this by talking, you know, about what he was saying during the riot and not doing anything, that instead uh, they kept it to his actions and those actions of the co-conspirators who were listed there in the days around the of what happened on January 6th. And so 
He had a really blunt uh, assessment of what we've heard from John Laro and Trump's attorneys about this, where they've said, you know, he was just exercising his right to free speech. Bill Barr said that's not a valid argument. Um, this other the one that we've seen them kind of trot out, which was that Trump was acting on advice of legal counsel, particularly John Eastman. He said he doesn't think that would work because Trump would have to get on the stand and be cross-examined to use that defense. And he said he doesn't think that that would be successful for Trump because he said he doesn't think he can remember all the versions of events that he has put out about the election, basically implying that, that Trump has been lying about about the uh, the election and fraud, obviously, and that he wouldn't be able to to remember what he thought at what time. I think it's interesting that all of this comes a few days after we just found out that Trump's PAC spent more, PAC spent more than $40 million from campaign funds on legal fees. Um, and that's, by the way, before this latest indictment. Uh, let's listen to Barr reacting to that, speaking to you. I find that uh, sort of nauseating. I mean, this guy claims to be a multi-billionaire. And, you know, he goes out and raises money from hardworking class, hardworking people, small donors, and tells him this is to defend America and to, you know, take care of the election. He didn't provide any significant support during the 22 elections. Uh, and a lot of this money seems to be going to his legal fees. Nauseating? I just to hear him use those <laughs> words is stunning. Yeah, and he used nauseating twice, Poppy, actually. He yeah, used it I know. Here, and then he used it describing Trump's behavior uh, just about January 6th and reading through his behavior in this indictment. But on the legal fees itself, you know, Bill Barr is someone who is a lifelong Republican. He served in the Bush administration, obviously. He served under Trump. And so I, I just was curious what his view was, because Trump is using a lot of the political donations he gets for these legal fees. And you're totally right to note that this is just a small snapshot of what we know, the $40 million. I mean, that's a, a period where we haven't, we've seen so much more of an uptick in activity in just the last week alone. And Bill Barr to say essentially that he believes Trump is misleading people and these people who think they're contributing to his campaign when really they're helping pay off his legal fees and, and noting, you know, Trump's vast personal wealth, that it's not, it's not like someone who doesn't have money and needs help paying the legal fees. He was saying he's not using his own money, he's using their money to cover to cover the legal fees here. Caitlin, uh, you, you mentioned, or you and Poppy both mentioned, the word nauseating. You said he said it twice. It, it, the second time it was in reference, or as he was describing uh, Trump's criticism of the special counsel. I want to play that for you. To me, it's, it's amazing that it, you read through the indictment and his behavior in that indictment, and it's nauseating. It's despicable behavior. Whether it's criminal or not, someone who engaged in that kind of bullying about a process that is fundamental to our system and to our self-government shouldn't be anywhere near the Oval Office. And for him to be attacking a prosecutor who is investigating that uh, with all the epithets and so forth, which he has no basis for, as far as I can tell, you know, is, is ridiculous. I mean, on one level, I pause because the former president, when he was the attorney general of the United States of America, was attacking his prosecutors and his uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation and other law enforcement entities. Uh, and he didn't say anything about it for the most part. Uh, but those are very pointed uh, and cutting comments from last night. They were. And he was essentially saying, you know, what Trump has said about Jack Smith, it, it kind of gets glossed over sometimes just because there is so much to talk about. But if you look at Trump's 
social truth social feed. I mean, he calls him a crackhead. He calls him deranged. He implied that he had something to do with the cocaine that was found in the White House. And so that's why I was curious what what Bill Barr makes that. I mean, Trump has attacked every prosecutor that's ever looked into into him in, in personal terms. And Barr was saying there's no basis for that, that he thinks that from what he's observed, Jack Smith is doing a fair job. He pushed back on people who say that the Justice Department is being weaponized against Trump, saying this is, you know, of Trump's own making. And he said he had no doubt, Phil and Poppy, that if if Trump is reelected, that he will try to use the Justice Department to go after his uh, political opponent, something that Trump himself has foreshadowed. I mean, it was just a remarkably candid interview. And Phil, you talked about how long it was. It was not supposed to be that long. We were just going to do two <laughs> segments with him, get his take. But but he was so candid and so blunt in what he views about Trump. And he made clear that, that the reason he's speaking out like this is because he does not think Trump belongs near the Oval Office again. And I know that we live in this kind of alternate reality where nothing seems normal. But to hear someone who is just the attorney general for Trump Uh, for the president of the United States coming out so harshly against his his 2024 run is notable. But I will say, when I asked Bill Barr what he would do if Trump is the 2024 Republican nominee, he did not rule out voting for him. Uh, That's wild. Also, I I have to be a a candid uh, statement, Caitlin, when I woke up and I pulled the transcript from last night because I was sleeping. and I saw how long it was. I was like, oh, yes, this was this had to have been good <laughs> because this was definitely not the plan. Um, it really was good. It was fascinating uh, and wide ranging as well. Caitlin, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Caitlin. We'll see you tonight. Thanks. Um, you heard Caitlin interview. Uh, you heard Caitlin mention Donald Trump's attorneys have said that he was acting on the advice of lawyers, particularly his counsel, John Eastman. What about that defense? Will it hold up in court? We're going to be joined by his lawyer next. And new this morning, Lizzo responds to allegations from three of her former dancers who say the pop star created a, quote, hostile work environment. We're going to hear from those dancers just ahead. So welcome back. We're getting a hint this morning of what Trump's legal strategy in court is going to be on this latest indictment. The former president's attorney has argued Trump's efforts to overturn the election were based on advice from counsel. Well, specifically John Eastman, one of his lawyers, and also one of six co-conspirators in Trump's indictment. You had one of the leading constitutional scholars in the United States, John Eastman, say to President Trump, this is a protocol that you can follow. It's legal. That eliminates criminal intent. Federal prosecutors have a lot to say about Eastman, listed as co-conspirator two in the indictment. That's their name for Eastman. It appears 30 times throughout this document. The indictment says co-conspirator to, quote, devised and attempted to implement a strategy to leverage the vice president's ceremonial role overseeing the certification proceeding to obstruct the certification of the presidential election. The indictment says later about a meeting on January 4th, quote, the defendant and co-conspirator then asked the vice president to either unilaterally reject the legitimate electors from the seven targeted states or send the question of which slate of was legitimate to the targeted state's legislatures. Now, that same day, the indictment also alleges Eastman admitted to a senior advisor to Trump that he knew new court would support, no court would support his theory. It says, quote, the senior advisor told co-conspirator 2, you're going to cause riots in the streets. And co-conspirator 2 responded that there had previously been points in the nation's history where violence was necessary to protect the republic. 
Former Vice President Pence yesterday rejected that notion put forward by Eastman that he could pause the 2020 electoral vote certification. Here he was. Let's be clear on this point. It wasn't just that they asked for a pause. Uh, the president uh, specifically asked me and his gaggle of, uh, of crackpot lawyers asked me to literally reject votes. Joining us now is John Eastman's co-counsel, Harvey Silverglate. Harvey, I appreciate your time this morning. Do you expect your client to be charged? Um, well, first of all, he, he is obviously one of the unnamed, uh, unindicted co-conspirators. I was quite appalled that they didn't name him since uh, everybody knows who, who he, he was. Um, were they, was it a phony effort to protect his privacy or, or, or what? But yes, I'm 99.99% okay. sure that it's Eastman, my client. Okay. And you think he'll be charged? Uh, do I think he'll be charged? Uh, Charles Burnham and I, Charles is the, is the uh, main lawyer. He brought me onto the team because of certain um, targeted experience that I have in this arena. We are preparing a memorandum that we are going to send to the Attorney General of the United States sometime next week, uh, laying out the facts and the law and arguing that our client acted as an attorney advising a client that the advice was lawful and that Eastman should not be indicted. We are further going to say that if indicted, he is going to trial. If convicted, he will appeal. Mm -hmm. This is not a case where there's any plea bargaining in the future. Okay, that's interesting. So you're going to go to Merrick Garland and try to get your client not Ab charged by, by Jack Smith. Absolutely. Look, let, Trump's attorney, John Loro, uh, is pointing at your client, Eastman. And here are several times in the last 24 hours when he said Trump did nothing wrong. This was what his lawyers told him to do. Let's play it. Trump did nothing wrong, and he acted according to the lawful advice of an attorney. Now, I want to make one thing clear. I am not a Trump I, fan. I just want um, you to listen, Harvey, if I Trump. could, I to did. what Trump's lawyer said. Here it is. Okay. Okay, I apologize. Go ahead. We don't have the sound. Go ahead, Harvey. I'm sorry we don't have the sound, but you can respond to what Trump's attorney, John Laura, has okay. said. Um, I, I expected Trump to rely on the advice of counsel, and the advice of counsel in this case was perfectly, perfectly legal. So you have no problem, and you don't view this as throwing your client under the bus at all, despite these repeated pointings Correct. at your client. Correct. Okay. He, he, my, my client was the, was the attorney for Trump. Trump was enti is entitled to rely on the advice of the attorney. It was lawful advice. I have no problem with that. Let me ask you about a few of the specific things alleged in the indictment. Alleged in the indictment is that John Eastman, your client, asked the vice president's counsel, Mike Pence's counsel, to break the law in writing that he did this on the night of January 6th, the night of January 6th, after the insurrection, let me read from it, quote, co-conspirator to email the vice president's counsel advocating that the vice president violate the law and seek further delay of certification 
co-conspirator wrote, I implore you to consider one more relative minor violation of the ECA, the Electoral Count Act, and adjourn for 10 days. Would you concede that your client did that and asked the vice president to break the law? Yes. I, no, no, I don't concede that he asked the vice president to break the law. He asked the vice president to engage in a, a, a minority view, a very minority view, but uh, there's an interpretation of the law here that is within the bounds of reason. Uh, very few people would agree, but some people would agree. And, um, and you'll notice, by the way, there were no threats made. Uh, if there were threats made, that that would be a different story. He was Why? trying to persuade. It's in direct he was trying conflict. trying to persuade the vice president. It's in direct conflict with his own October 2020 document in which he wrote about the 12th Amendment, quote, nowhere does it suggest that the president of the Senate, that would be Mike Pence at the time, makes the determination on his own. So why was he telling the vice president to do it then? Because he had a client. He was making the best argument he could in favor of his client. I have had many cases where I have made legal arguments different from my legal arguments in other cases. He was a lawyer for a client. It is his constitutional obligation to do the best he can for that client's interests, and that's what he was doing. There was Har absolutely no crime involved. Harvey, two more People questions. People do not understand the role of lawyers. I understand the role Go of on. lawyers. I'm asking you about these allegations made in the indictment. In paragraph 18 of the indictment, it talks about what went on, the communication between your client and, the, uh, and what happened in Arizona, the Arizona House Speaker, a Republican who we know is Rusty Bowers. Did your client talk to the Arizona House Speaker and ask him to decertify the election and then quote, let the courts sort it out, despite saying that he, quote, did not know enough about the facts on the ground in the state of Arizona? We'll concede that, but what is, what is illegal about that? Nothing. What are you, what are you conceding? That's my, that's... Specifically, all, that all of that team has right? That is within the bounds of the law. That's what I'm saying. Did your client, let me ask you about another allegation then, on page, uh, paragraph 89, I should say, of the indictment. This is talking about knowingly violating the Electoral Count Act. Did your client, in fact, circulate a plan that he acknowledged would violate the Electoral Count Act, what we were speaking about before? Is that correct? That I'm not sure of. But okay. it, uh, assuming that he did, his role was as a lawyer, trying to come up with the best arguments he could. I have had many cases where I've argued a point quite opposite something I argued in an earlier case. Lawyers have a particular role in our system. They do not have to be consistent from one case to another. But they cannot help in pursuance of committing a crime. The final question that I have for you is about the state of Georgia because what's alleged here is that Eastman falsely claimed, we know without evidence, that Trump lost Georgia in part because 66,000 underage people and 2,500 convicted felons had voted that in the state that year. We know that not to be true. The indictment says that Eastman acknowledged in an email that he and Trump had, quote, been made aware 
that some of the allegations that I just read and evidence proffered by experts had been inaccurate, but the claims remained in the lawsuit. Can you explain why? Eastman was operating in his role as a lawyer and an advocate, and he had a constitutional right, in fact, an obligation, an ethical obligation, to make arguments that were in his client's favor. If ultimately it ended up in court and it was ruled erroneous, then he would obviously abide by that. But until there was a judicial edict, he makes the best argument he can. Again, he was a lawyer arguing as, as well as he could for his client. Harvey Silverglate, thank you for your time this morning. Uh, please come back, actually, after uh, you guys submit what you just described as you're going to submit to the Attorney General uh, and Jack Smith's team. It'd be good to have you back to further the conversation. Be happy, be happy to do it. Okay, thank you. All right, and coming up, pop star Lizzo is speaking out for the first time about a lawsuit in which three of her former backup dancers allege workplace harassment. We'll get reaction from those former employees next. Well, just moments ago, Lizzo broke her silence on the lawsuit filed against her by three of her former dancers who claim they were subjected to a hostile work environment and harassment. The complaint also naming her production company and the captain of her dance team. And it says that the dancers were, quote, exposed to an overtly sexual atmosphere that permeated their workplace, which included outings where nudity and sexuality were a focal point. The suit also alleges, among other things, that Lizzo called out one of the plaintiffs for her weight gain after accusing the dancer of not being committed to her role. Lizzo is known, of course, for her uplifting messages and advocacy for body positivity. I'm not going to be able to please everybody with my outward appearance. Someone's always going to have a critique. Someone's always going to have some negativity to say about me. So it, all that matters is what I think about it. Now, after what had been a notably lengthy silence this morning, Lizzo responded to the lawsuit on Instagram, writing, in part, these sensationalized stories are coming from former employees who have already publicly admitted that they were told their behavior on tour was inappropriate and unprofessional. I take my music and my performances seriously because at the end of the day, I only want to put out the best art that, uh, that represents me and my fans. With passion comes hard work and high standards. Joining us now are the three dancers, Crystal Williams, Ariana Davis, and Noel Rodriguez, along with their attorney, uh, Ron Zambrano. Uh, Crystal, I want to start with you. The, the response that you have to uh, the response from Lizzo after the silence for a pretty extended period of time. Uh, yeah, I want to say that um, reading it uh, just kind of further my, furthered my like disappointment uh, in regards to the situation just because the facts are the facts. What we experienced and what we witnessed is absolutely what, what happened. There's nothing sensationalized um, about it. So all that I can hope is that people focus more so on the facts rather than the court of public opinion. Ariana, at what point did you realize that what you were experiencing, what you led you experienced, was not normal? Um, I. It's hard to answer that question because as this was my first professional job, I was told by the dance captain and you know, um, just it's this 
thing in the dance industry that you have to, you know, shut up and, you know, take whatever you get and just be grateful for whatever crumbs you get um, as a dancer. Um, so a lot of things that were going on, it took me a really long time to figure out that it was wrong. It took me actually until leaving the, the camp that I figured out that everything that w went on was bad because I just chalked it up to, you know, oh, Lizzo might be a diva or, you know, this is just the industry. This is what we we go through. I mean, I, I, I think that I had inklings, like I would be on the phone with my mom all day and, and be like just complaining about the, the disrespect and the, the treatment and the, the humiliation. I mean, m me personally, looking at um, the response from Lizzo was so disheartening because she was there. She was there and to fix your hand to write on a piece of paper that you don't that you discredit everything we're saying is incredibly frustrating um the facts are the facts like crystal said was i pressured to touch a new performer yes was i brought into a private meeting where i was kind of interrogated about my personal matters and ended up having to share very personal personal things about myself regarding my weight yes what, I mean, the list goes on. Were we pressured to do an excruciatingly long rehearsal that turned into a re-audition for the job that we already booked because apparently we weren't doing good enough? Yes, that is true. During that, during that um, excruciatingly long re-audition process, was I under the impression that if I left the stage, I would be fired? Yes. Did I? unfortunately go to the bathroom on myself on one stage because I was so terrified yes there is you in a court of law I don't know I'm not a lawyer I don't know anything but I know that if you ask someone to tell the truth these things will come out of her mouth if right. you have to say yes or no to these questions she has to say yes because they are true there was multiple witnesses and I I don't appreciate um, the discredit of, of our feelings and our experiences and our traumas. Understood. Uh, Joelle, you allege that uh, Lizzo intended to hit you at one point uh, after you, sorry, Noel, uh, the intended to hit you at one point after you resigned. Do you really think that she was going to resort or could yeah. resort to physical violence? Yeah, I do. I do. And I mean, the facts of that were that she actually balled up her fist like this to me. She started cracking her knuckles and she was like, you're so effing lucky that basically I'm not going to hit you. And, you know, I was in shock watching her do that and cracking her knuckles and acting as if she was going to come at me. And for a second, I was like, you know, I don't think she's going to do that. Like, that's not what's going to happen. But the fact that one of her dancers, that was, all of us were present, all the dancers were present for every, mostly all of these allegations. And in that meeting that we had where she got physical and was about to assault me, her best friend, who's also one of the dancers, had to jump out of the couch and physically hold her back from coming and hitting me. So yes, I, I do believe that if she wasn't held back by that dancer, um, she would have hit me. It's a, 
what you described there, there's clearly not only you believe you have witnesses, but potentially you have other people that would want to be party to a lawsuit like this or experience similar things. And I guess to some degree, I would direct that uh, your way, Ron, in terms of do you believe more people will join? Do you believe that there are other individuals who worked uh, with these three women who experienced the same things that would like uh, to join this lawsuit or sue on their own account in the future? I 100%. Uh, people have already come on social media to support our clients. People have already uh, reached out to my office uh, through social media. Um, 100% there are, I, I believe more people will come forward, if not here uh, where we are in Los Angeles, uh, but in New York, and we, we've received other calls and uh, inquiries from around the nation. Okay. Crystal Williams, Ariana Davis, Noel Rodriguez, and Ron Zambrano, thank you guys for sharing your story. So police in Oregon say they are looking for even more victims. This is after a woman escaped a homemade cinder block dungeon. And Republicans stood behind former President Trump after his last two indictments. Is the third one any different? We're going to break down the numbers next. New this morning, a frightening story out of Oregon. Investigators say they are looking for more victims. This is after a woman escaped a homemade cinder block dungeon in Klamath Falls, where her home is. She told police she was kidnapped from Seattle and sexually assaulted. The FBI says a 29-year-old man is in federal custody on interstate kidnapping charges. Natasha Chen joins us live from Los Angeles. That is terrifying. What are, what are the feds saying? Yeah, Poppy, uh, this man has now been indicted for kidnapping. He allegedly picked up his victim in Seattle after an alleged sexual encounter, pretended he was an undercover cop, showed her a badge, handcuffed her, put leg irons on her, and put her in his car. She asked why it was taking so long to get to the police station and realized she was being kidnapped when she saw the GPS on his phone saying that they had hours left to go until the destination. He was driving her across state lines to southern Oregon. Oregon and putting her in that cinder block cell that he had made in his garage, the photo of which you saw. Uh, and she eventually the next morning broke out of that. Uh, the door was locked from the inside, but she banged on it, the police say, until she could escape. And the FBI is crediting her with her actions and potentially saving other victims. Here's what they said. The victim's focus, actions, and her will to survive triggered a law enforcement response that may have actually saved many other women from a similar nightmare. Through quick and decisive law enforcement action across many local, state, and federal agencies, we were able to get Zubari into custody in Reno, Nevada the following day. Uh, he apparently went by several different names. Uh, investigators say he lived in 10 different states in the last decade, uh, and there are potentially other victims in other places, and they're asking people to come forward. Uh, he potentially also used similar methods, for example, uh, possibly drugging drinks, pretending to be a police officer, and in some cases, Poppy, even filming encounters, investigators say, to make it look like these encounters were consensual. Wow. Natasha Chen, thank you. Well, the country will witness history in just a few hours from now when Donald Trump is expected to be arrested and arraigned for his role in efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And while this may be his third time arrested, his support among Republican voters, that has not wavered. CNN senior data reporter Harry Inton is here to explain. So, Harry, do Republicans think this indictment 
at least in the first 60 hours of it, uh, is any different than the prior two? No, you know, it's amazing right now. You know, we've had three indictments of the former president. If you look at the percentage of Republicans who believe he should be or should have been charged, you'll see it's all the same. It's 15 or 16 percent. It doesn't seem to matter what he's charged with. Most Republicans believe he should not be charged in any of these cases, but, and those numbers are very consistent. But that doesn't include this most recent indictment, It's right? the role for January 6th. That's it, right now. But without having read this. With, without having read this, this is beforehand said, should he have been charged, just 15%. You can see that those numbers are just very consistent across the board. And what I'll also note is that, you know, we've polled previous, before, and then after, and even after they've read these indictments, these folks' mm. minds really haven't changed at all on any of them. Obviously, that's where Republicans are. What about the overall gap? Yeah, so, you public? Know, yeah, if you look, there's a massive divide in line between Republicans and those overall. And what you see here is that if you look at those, look at, take, take a look here. If you're amongst Republicans, this is the great dividing line in the Republican primary. 66%, you get 66% support if you believe he has not committed a serious federal crime. It's just 12% if you believe he has. That's the dividing line in the Republican primary at this point. All right, more numbers to come in the days and weeks ahead. Harry Anton, thanks. Thank you. Harry, and ahead for us, stay with us because we remember and honor a beloved colleague. It's a hard day for us at CNN. Our CNN family lost a close friend and colleague. Melissa Elkis died yesterday after a medical emergency. There she is. You see that smile? She was a control room veteran at this network for the last 26 years. She worked on so many shows throughout her time with us, including our show, Every Morning, as happy as can be. So the banners you see at the bottom of your screen, that was all her. The full screen graphics you see, see through the broadcast, that was all Melissa. She was dedicated to putting on the best show, and by all accounts, she consistently delivered. But even more than that, she was just one of the best people we knew. She was smart and loving, so funny. She was a huge animal lover, especially of her cats. And boy, were they lucky to have her. Her family lovingly calls her Missy, and we will deeply miss her. Every now and then, Melissa and her colleagues, see them there, Charlene would set up a fancy area for dinner with a tablecloth and flowers, a candle lit and sparkling apple cider. And they called it Charlisa's. But it's her kindness that the entire team, all of us, will remember and miss most about Melissa. She was so much more than just a colleague. She was a mentor. She was a friend. From our youngest PAs to our most seasoned producers, she was always there, always trying to help. She tried to make every day and our shows better. And that laugh, oh, you could hear it all over the building. And it was always, always quickly followed by a chorus of laughter from everyone around her. Starting a three-hour show at six in the morning, it can be tough. But Melissa and her laugh made every day so much easier for everyone. Our hearts go out to Melissa's mother, Regina, her brother, John, her sister, Jennifer, and her sister-in-law as well. Also her nieces, her nephews. We send them and Melissa our love, and we will miss her dearly. Melissa Elkis was 52. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 